Hey there, it's Frank Buckley. This week on the podcast, it's a conversation about billionaires and how some of them use their wealth to affect policy and ultimately our lives. Who do they think they are and why aren't they paying their taxes? Those are just a couple of the questions we explore during today's conversation. And you can always see our conversations on KTLA on the weekends and then after they air on KTLA on YouTube and on the KTLA Plus app. We always go a bit deeper here on the audio podcast with questions that we pose to our guests after we go off the air on TV. Thanks for watching, for listening, and for commenting on the shows and podcasts on social media. Tag me at Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and on Instagram, or post your comments on my Facebook page. I read every single comment. Now here's our show about billionaires and how they affect our lives. Well, today we take you to a beautiful place in the Swiss Alps, Davos, Switzerland. We've all heard of Davos and the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. But what really happens at Davos at this gathering of the world's richest and by default most powerful people uh, in the world? They may look like us, but according to our guest who has seen them up close in their natural habitat, who are these billionaires? They are an entirely different breed, according to him. He discusses the rise of this new elite and the damage he says they're causing to the rest of us and how they profited from the pandemic in his new book, Davos Man, How Billionaires Devoured the World. The author of the book is Peter Goodman. He's the global economics correspondent for The New York Times. Peter, welcome to Frank Buckley Interviews. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Your book is a fascinating look into how this extremely small group of people, you call them the world's ultimate winners, how they've been able to capture the global economy, national governments, and bend them to their will. Your prologue is a takedown of this group of, of obscene wealth folks that should be recommended reading for anyone who wants to know how the world really works. But But first, who are these elite people? Who are the Davos men? And what do they represent? Well, so this is a term, Davos man, that was coined by the political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004. And he was talking about people who, of course, go to the World Economic Forum, this glittering gathering of the world's most powerful people up in the Alps of Switzerland. He meant it to mean people whose finances are so complex, they straddle jurisdictions. These are people who require accountants, lawyers, and lobbyists in multiple countries, such that they don't have the same sort of allegiance to any single country that the rest of us might have. I'm using it to mean not just that, but also this group of billionaires, uh, and they are, are many in Davos itself, who would have us believe that when we organize our societies around returning more wealth to people who already have most of it, we will somehow all benefit, that all of our interests are collectively tied together. And this is you know, really personified by one of my five main characters, uh, Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of the Silicon Valley company Salesforce, who last year at virtual Davos, they couldn't meet because of the pandemic in person, you know, literally said, CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic, uh, not not frontline medical workers, you know, CEOs. I mean, that that was not a gaffe. That was really a worldview. That's how they present themselves. I remember reading that and thinking you, you've, you've got to be kidding. And someone like that, is he not um, self-aware, self-conscious, 
How does that happen? How does he make a statement like that in the midst of a pandemic when you have people who are the true heroes saving lives, putting their lives at risk every day? Well, I think one of the gifts of the billionaire class, or at least Davos man, is that they're very good at crafting these narratives that are very self-serving and then believing in them so deeply that then they can go out and sell them. Uh, and, you know, Benioff, he didn't just say that offhandedly. He repeated it multiple times in the course of one of these seminars in Davos. And then he said, moreover, we didn't save you for profit. We did it to save the world. Government didn't save you. Non-governmental organizations didn't save you. We saved you. I think if you parse this, what you see is a kind of elaborate prophylactic against democracies using their own power to hold billionaires to account to redistribute some of the gains of global capitalism. He's essentially saying, we've got this. You don't have to regulate us. You don't have to enforce uh, antitrust laws. You don't have to worry about collective bargaining so that labor gets a piece of the action. You know, we will take care of this. And you certainly don't have to tax us. That's, you know, number one on the list. Right. And, and that is part of the astonishing story here is that and you go into into some detail with individuals, people like us who pay our taxes and and some who've truly struggled during the pandemic and juxtaposed it against the lives that you've seen up close in a place like Davos. I, I want to ask you about Davos itself, because I've always wondered. Sure. I, I've covered uh, big sort of international summits, uh, the NATO summit, uh, an EU summit. And, and covering it is sort of a misnomer because what typically happens is all of these correspondents from around the world end up in a filing room and are just right. fed information that then go out and become the headlines around the world. Is it that way at Davos or are you hanging out with these billionaires and what's that like? Well, I'm hanging out because I've been able to go as a participant. You know, it, it's like the ultimate high school hierarchy. Everyone walks around looking at one another's badges, which are helpfully color coded to let you know, you know, what worth one has. <laughs> so I've been able to go with this standard white badge, which means I can go where I want with some limits. There's some private meetings where I can't go. Uh, the unfortunate, just regular press, uh, they have to wear these degrading orange badges. They get herded <laughs> off into this tent. And yeah, they run when the bell rings. Now, even people who are regular participants, we're still participants in this kind of charade because the cool kids at Davos, the people who actually pay the bills, these are finance chiefs like Benioff, uh, tech chiefs like Benioff, rather, financiers like Jamie Dimon, who's the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, who's another one of my primary characters, Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, Steve Schwartzman, uh, the head of Blackstone. These guys are able to go to these secret lounges where you know only companies that pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for membership can get access. And there, the head of the forum, this guy Klaus Schwab, likes to play matchmaker. So you're away from journalists, you're away from annoying regulators, and you're meeting in a quiet little room somewhere, just you, the head of a fossil fuel company, sitting across the table from a member of the of the Saudi monarchy as you're talking about how to you know, make inroads into the oil patch. I mean, that's the magic of Davos. So the forward-facing thing that a lot of, a lot of you know, you don't have to go to Switzerland to see it, you can stream it uh, on their online platform, is a bunch of earnest seminars on all the things you would expect, climate change, future of work, 
gender and racial injustice? How do we solve these things? Lots of smart people, lots of good information, really well-intentioned. But again, the cool kids, they'll maybe go into the Congress Center. I've seen billionaires you know, go in and they'll engage in simulations of the Syrian refugee experience. They'll submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark while someone's hollering at them, demanding papers in a language they don't understand. And then they'll all congratulate one another for their empathy. And then they'll get out of there as quickly as possible and go off and have a banquet you know, hosted by McKinsey or some other consulting firm or, or Citigroup where they eat truffles and drink champagne and, <laughs> and then retire to their suites to do deals. Wow. You, so you mentioned uh, Jamie Dimon, Mark Benioff, Steve Schwartzman, Larry Fink. You didn't mention Jeff Bezos, who always get, also gets right. some special attention in your book. Um, talk to us about those men and why you focused on Bezos and these others. Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, I could have focused on 25 other characters and ended up with largely the same story. I had seen these guys over the years. Bezos, by the way, is the one who hasn't gone to Davos for many years. He used to go quite a bit in the 90s. He was the star draw. Benioff, I've been watching for years at Davos because he's actually uh, one of the trustees. He's part of the brain trust. He and, and he lives it. You know, he he will he writes books about how business is the ultimate agent for social change. He champions this idea that Klaus Schwab pioneered stakeholder capitalism, this idea that, you know, Milton Friedmanism is over. We're no longer just running companies to return profit to shareholders. We're now catering to stakeholders, which means labor, never labor unions. They're very careful to not use that word, but labor, uh, local communities, society. It's always on their terms, right? It's always this kind of unilateralist generosity from atop the mountain. They don't want to be tied in to real exercises of democracy like progressive taxation where the people have a say over the terms. So I was interested in Benioff. I was interested in Larry Fink, who's another guy who champions stakeholder capitalism. Uh, his uh, fund, by the way, BlackRock, manages $10 trillion of investment. And he presents himself as an agent for human progress by steering capital to places where we're going to solve our biggest problems like climate change. Now, Bezos, though, is kind of the ultimate test of all that because he signed this uh, so-called statement of a purpose of a corporation, which was the business roundtable then run by Jamie Dimon in the summer of 2019 pledging that stakeholder capitalism is the new way that CEOs are running their companies. Something like 180 CEOs signed this statement. The pandemic, I argue in my book, was the ultimate test of those values. And what did we see? Well, Jeff Bezos roughly doubles his value. You know, he at some point is worth on paper $200 billion. He manages to blast himself off into space uh, for five and a half billion dollars at a time when most of humanity has no COVID vaccines and at a time when his own employees are laboring inside Amazon warehouses without protective gear, while Bezos is lauding them for heroically saving other people's grandparents by sending out things like gloves and masks and hand sanitizer. His own workers don't have access to these things, and they're being told that they're prioritizing the shipment of these things. And when one of them stages a walkout to protest this, he's actually fired for violating quarantine, which is incredibly ironic, given that he wants everyone to be quarantined. 
uh, though at pay. And Amazon, of course, has lobbied aggressively to prevent a paid sick leave policy. You know, the U.S. is the only country on earth that had, I'm sorry, the only developed country on earth that has no paid sick leave policy, not by accident. So I wanted to get into this whole concept of stakeholder capitalism and is it real or not? Uh, and certainly Benioff, Diamond, Bezos uh, gave us a chance to test that idea. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll continue on that thread. When we come back, how did Davos man benefit from the pandemic? We'll ask the New York Times global economics correspondent, Peter Goodman, when we come back. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back to Frank Buckley Interviews, back with our conversation with the New York Times global economics correspondent, Peter Goodman. He's the author of the new book, Davos Man, How Billionaires Devoured the World. Back to what we were talking about a second ago, Peter. Is it sure. possible that some of these billionaires profited from the pandemic? Oh, it, it's certain. I mean, most of the pandemic rescues in wealthy countries we're all about rescuing asset holders. I mean, people who own stocks and real estate and bonds. And most of those assets are controlled uh, by the wealthiest among us. I mean, most people in the United States don't, don't own a single share of stock. So if, if you try to rescue stock markets, you're going to benefit Davos, man, uh, above all. But also, you know, these are people who have very strategically invested in things uh, that uh, contributed to the pandemic itself, right? So take somebody like Steve Schwartzman, who's the world's largest private equity magnate. This is somebody who's worth, depending upon the day, $35 billion. Mm -hmm. He invested aggressively into American healthcare uh, in, in the run-up to the pandemic. Famously, he sunk $6 billion into a company called Team Health, uh, which is a, an emergency room staffing company uh, not by accident. I mean, Schwartzman is a guy who understands, just as a casino magnate gets, that it's a good thing to make your money in a dark room where people are drinking and don't know what time it is. The emergency room, if you're looking to make profit in healthcare, that's a good place to be because many of the patients, as it were, come in in a state where they're not really uh, predisposed to be asking about the fine points of their insurance policies. They will sign on the dotted line to go see the people in the white coats. And it turns out they're often signing away their rights to see someone in, in their health insurance network. Schwartzman's company has been at the center of this so-called surprise medical billing scandal, where the surprise is not of the happy variety. You think that you're seeing someone in your health insurance uh, policy, and then uh, weeks or months later, you get an extraordinary bill, people get hassled by collection agents, and, and Schwartzman's investments into healthcare are part of what is financialized healthcare so that healthcare functions, you know, not unlike your airline or your local coffee chain. Your airline wants every seat full so they can charge more for the seats. Well, your healthcare operation 
wants uh, all the rooms filled. And this partially explains, you know, how we end up with a third fewer hospital rooms in the decades running up to the pandemic and why the U.S., despite having a tremendous head start, gets totally overwhelmed by the pandemic. Moreover, when a whistleblower at Schwartz, at one of the hospitals that Schwartzman's company serves, uh, says in March 2020 in Bellingham, Washington, why are we continuing to bring in people for elective surgeries? Why do we have no triage? Why is no one wearing a mask at reception? He's told, well, the, you know, the, the hospital, that's our client. They make money off those elective surgeries. Masks are upsetting the people coming in the door. And he's eventually fired, mm. this whistleblower, underscoring how profit really trumps healthcare and especially public health in the worst pandemic in a century. Let me take you back to what we were discussing earlier, this idea of the cool kids at Davos getting into lounges sure. and putting uh, you know, one powerful uh, wealthy guy uh, with uh, someone from a fossil fuel company. Does any good ever come out of that? Yes, um, th they are seeking profit, but I have, you talked about people not having shares of stock. I have a 401k, so that means I own some stock. I want my sure. retirement fund to grow. Isn't that good for me? Yeah, sure. I mean, middle class and upper middle class people also benefit from rescuing assets. I mean, it's not like the billionaires get everything and no one gets anything. It's a question of how unequal a society do we live in? And should we also have some policies that help people who don't have assets, but who have rent that they have to pay, who, who need to put groceries on the table for their families when they uh, lose their jobs? We have to think about maybe preventing unemployment. I mean, in much of the rest of the world, uh, we had furlough policies where uh, companies got money from governments. This worked very well in Nordic countries, and people didn't get laid off at all, and unemployment never went up. In the States, we had unemployment you know, go beyond 14% in uh, the first couple of months of the pandemic while we bailed out the asset holders. Now, you know, back to your question about Davos, sure, you know, lots of good comes. I mean, I've, I've I've learned all sorts of interesting things at Davos. There's brilliant uh, intellectuals there, uh, the business people themselves. I mean, I'm not, my book doesn't demonize the billionaire class. I mean, take somebody like Bezos. Thanks for e-commerce. How would we have gotten through the pandemic without the convenience of e-commerce? Benioff, uh, his company Salesforce has allowed people to work from homes uh, much more easily because they're using the cloud for communication. That's all well and good. These guys have pioneered uh, technologies that uh, turns out are beneficial to society. They've capitalized on it. They've made a lot of money. Good for them. I'm just saying they ought to pay their taxes so that the infrastructure that they're using to build their own fortunes is paid for so that we can continue to educate people to come out with the coding skills that they've uh, made use of. I mean, Benioff is a guy who's constantly talking about his philanthropy. That's part of his, uh, his whole brand. You know, he talked in, in terms of, uh, celebrating himself as a hero of the pandemic. You know, he noted that 50 million pieces of PPE in the first couple of months of the pandemic he brought in from China, thanks to knowing people like uh, the CEO of Alibaba, Jack Ma, who he knows from Davos, and his new CEO, Daniel Jang. I mean, this is an example of his networking at Davos. He's able to produce 50 million pieces of PPE. That's great. That probably saved lives, but we can still ask, why are we dependent upon the largesse of a tech bro in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century to outfit our frontline medical workers? Well, in part, it's because Benioff's own company has twice paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes. And that, again, not by accident, 
because he sends his money to places like Jamie Dimon's then headed business roundtable when Trump delivers $1.5 trillion in tax cuts, which helps make Salesforce's stock go up. Uh, you know, Benioff's a guy who cares a lot about homelessness. His stock has gone up so much. He's paying his executives in stock. That's partially why there is so much homelessness in places like the San Francisco Bay Area. So at the end of the day, he's an enabler of this system that's been beneficial to him, often at the expense of ordinary people. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. Uh, when we come back, more with the New York Times global economics correspondent, Peter Goodman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back. Uh, and let's get back to our conversation with New York Times journalist Peter Goodman. Peter, uh, in your book, you, you talk about how these uh, the Davos men, that their, that their self-interests um, often result in change in government policy, so internal policies in countries around the world. And that has resulted, you claim, in more of a sense of nationalistic or anti-immigrant backlash as well. Tell us how and, and sure. put those two together for us. Sure. Well, all right. So the short version is uh, the wealthy take their money. They finance lobbyists, accountants, lawyers who uh, put new loopholes into the tax code, uh, expand the existing ones. They lobby for their interests. And my book essentially tells the story of how over the last half century in many major economies, we've had this dramatic bottom up transfer of wealth that's happened so gradually that it's almost invisible. But the result of it is that in many societies, there are huge numbers of people suffering scarcity. And uh, because the Davos man story is so sort of embedded and accepted as to just how our lives work, when then something happens on the surface, like there's a big influx of immigrants as happened in Sweden in 2015, uh, political opportunists can then blame very real deep set problems on the newcomers. You know, Trump, of course, capitalized on this in 2016, right? We'd had decades of stagnation uh, for working people, uh, the erosion of middle class standards. And Trump comes along and, and says, well, it's, you know, immigrants coming over the wall from from Central America and Mexico. It's China. Now, China actually is a complex story in the global economy, but we're trading with China in the way in which we are because Davos man lobbied uh, to allow us to ship more and more jobs to China as a way to decrease costs, to return more to Davos man himself. Our problems are not made in China. They are made in the boardrooms of companies in Seattle and New York and in Congress. And so what I found in looking at Brexit, the rise of the extreme right wing in Italy, in Sweden, where a neo-Nazi party becomes mainstream during the time that I'm reporting this book, in each of these cases, we've had decades of declining living standards for middle class people. And then along come the political opportunists blaming vulnerable people like immigrants. That's mm. the story. Let me pick it up with that idea, this, this idea of anti-immigrant sort of backlash. Is it the idea that, that people feel 
wait a minute, I keep losing out and you keep gaining, or is it more of a, is there a disconnect between myself and Davos man? Is it just more that I keep losing out and I need someone to blame? Uh, yeah, it's it's the latter, right? Because we don't often talk about Davos man or the billionaire class. I mean, we talk about inequality. Working people certainly notice that their bosses are making you know, dramatic multiples more than they are. And yet in the political discourse, when we talk about the solutions to our problems, uh, we tend not to talk about wealth taxes. I mean, they're always proposed and then they don't go very far because Davos Mann has very carefully insinuated into our political discourse this idea that it's an all or nothing proposition, you know, innovation, economic growth. We either accept that we have COVID vaccines and Pfizer gets to sell them around the world to the highest bidder so that Pfizer shareholders benefit while the rest of while most of humanity gets nothing. Well, that's the state of the world that we've got. And then we get Uber and Google and central air conditioning and all sorts of things we really enjoy. Or we monkey around with that. And then we may as well be Venezuela where we're you know, diving into dumpsters for our dinner. And we may see through the absurdities of Davos where you know the wealthiest people on earth gather under the mantra committed to improving the state of the world. I mean, come on, these guys are the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo. How motivated are they to deliver change? But that bigger idea that I'm telling you about, that's pretty deep, you know? I mean, even people who will say, yeah, it would be great if we had more health care for people. It'd be great if we had more help for people who need housing. We'll say, well, but we can't afford these things. Well, why can't we afford these things? We always have money for tax cuts for billionaires, but then we never seem to have money for the things that people actually want. And so along come savvy political opportunists like Trump, who, you know, what is Donald Trump? He is a highly successful reality television star. And he certainly understands that the power of, you know, helping coal miners and steel workers get back to work through through tariffs while blaming China, immigrants, environmentalists for our problems. That's a good political proposition, even though it's a totally bankrupt economic proposition. It doesn't actually help the people that he's talking to. So that that's the, the sort of structure that I've seen everywhere I've looked. And I've, I've focused on France, Italy, the UK, Sweden, and the States. And in each of those examples, but you know, you could say the same about the Philippines, you could say the same about Brazil. Instead of talking about the people who've actually warped our democracies to their own benefit, we end up talking about just the latest thing, which is usually some outsider vulnerable group that gets affixed for the blame. And why is it that we allow these billionaires to continue this system? especially with regard to the fact that a Jeff Bezos, for example, doesn't pay any personal income tax. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by accident. I mean, Jeff Bezos was, until recently, the head of a company that employs 100 lobbyists in, in Washington. Uh, you know, oh, what a coincidence. Uh, the people in Washington seem to wake up in the morning predisposed to do things that are good for Amazon. I mean, our governments have largely been captured by these corporate interests. And oftentimes we will see things that people actually want. I mean, in your own state, California, the governor, a Democrat runs on, you know, let's give health care to everybody, single payer health care, polls extremely well. I don't have to tell you. Uh, in the end, 
the healthcare lobby, uh, which has a lot more money than any individual grassroots group, comes out and fear mongers, oh, this is going to interfere with the quality of your care. Or this is going to reduce your choices. You're going to get the government involved in your care. And, and, and this thing goes down. The people don't get what they want because it hurts an interest that's capable of hiring lobbyists to go and pursue its interests. And that's in a state that is dominated both in the executive and the legislature with Democrats who all, as you point out, have campaigned on this idea, but at the end of the day, didn't get it passed. I wanted to know, when you, after you've written this book and you've written these kinds of stories in the New York Times, when you are face-to-face -face with a Benioff or a Bezos or any of these folks that you mentioned, uh, Stephen Schwartzman, uh, Larry right. Fink, Jamie Dimon, have, have you received any feedback from them? Uh, I haven't, actually. I mean, I was able to engage with Benioff during the reporting of the book, uh, phone conversations, some, some texts. Uh, he hasn't uh, engaged with me since then. I mean, the last thing I wrote, I had an excerpt in the Times where I noted that uh, just after saying that we're all united uh, in this uh, pandemic, you know, we're all just singularly affected uh, by this virus. Uh, and he even said, you know, it's erased the illusions of our borders, which is really ironic because as uh, I heard from a Salesforce employee, Salesforce actually does business with ICE, uh, a part of Homeland Security uh, for which uh, the borders are most certainly in no way illusory. Right. Uh, but so Benioff then tweeted out a picture of himself on a boat uh, in Hawaii with Lars Ulrich, the Metallica drummer. <laughs> Uh, doesn't seem like he's having the same pandemic experience as most people. Moreover, you know, just look at who's delivering the packages, who's emptying the bedpans in hospitals. Uh, we are clearly not all having the same experience. Some people are much more vulnerable than others. Yeah, but to answer your question, yeah, he hasn't he hasn't talked to me. I haven't heard from these companies, which doesn't surprise me. Uh, I mean, I think these guys are so well insulated. I mean, Bezos is capable of flying off into space you know it, it, they're not gonna nitpick over one book uh that that maybe doesn't depict them so nicely finally are there in this billionaire class anyone who doesn't buy into the davos man mentality we, you know bill gates for example and i'm not saying that he he doesn't buy into it but bill gates has with warren buffett pledged to give away his wealth, uh, right. all of it. Um, is that an example of a person who is not buying into the, you know, as long as I'm doing well, you're doing well idea? Or is that just part of this idea that, hey, I'm doing well and I'm going to share with you uh, thought process? I think Bill Gates is a more complex Davos man. I mean, his philanthropy has been done at such scale that it's clearly had a tremendous impact and he should be celebrated and praised for that. Ask him about uh, lifting the patents on uh, Microsoft products in the developing world so that more people can take advantage of uh, the uh, intellectual property revolution so they can you know, build their own businesses and look after themselves without having to worry about some guy from America flying in to save them. Uh, I don't think you'll have such a productive conversation. <laughs> Moreover, it's still philanthropy. And I mean, Bill Gates could decide tomorrow, well, actually, I don't want to do this anymore. And that would be the end of that. I mean, is Bill Gates out there championing wealth taxes uh, so that the government, which however you feel about the government, I mean, some people have accused me of championing giant government. I'm championing government that people want. 
Uh, we can have the size of government that human beings desire. Government clearly uh, exists to solve problems that the market is not going to solve for us. I, the, the market is not going to you know, get the mail delivered to rural areas. Uh, and, the and the market clearly is not going to look after our, our, our public health interests. I mean, we need government at the table, and, and ultimately that requires taxation. So unless, unless I, I mean, this book ultimately is about trying to disabuse us of this notion that we can just count on the billionaires to solve our problems. It's not that we need to demonize them. We don't need to seize their wealth. Uh, they can continue to run their businesses, which in many ways are highly productive and have uh, fostered progress through innovation. But we still got to run our own affairs and have a say over the terms that govern global capitalism. Well, thank you for, uh, for doing such a meticulous job uh, in your reporting and, and actually putting a light on something that most of us don't really give a lot of thought to. Uh, we see the Davos headline once a year, and that's about it. But you have, have taken us inside this world, and, and I'm grateful. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks so much, Frank, for your excellent questions. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you're not a subscriber, I hope you'll do it today. It's free, of course, and it'll ensure that you won't miss a single episode of our podcast, which drops every week on Wednesday. You can also see our interviews on KTLA on the weekend and on YouTube. And I think we're on that new KTLA Plus app, so you can see our program on Roku and other devices. As always, thanks for sharing us on social media with your friends. Tag me when you do. I'm Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and on Instagram. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll see you on TV.